A record of 23-14-1. and one. The Montreal Canadiens have a record of 16-9-9. and nine. They have not been good when tied after 60 minutes. Those two teams are going to play in about an hour in what is now a four-game road trip for the Oilers. So they've had the Friday game in Ottawa move to Thursday. So now Wednesday, Thursday in Ottawa. And they're going to play in Calgary on Saturday rather than having no game that day. That's the game that was originally scheduled for May 7th. And likely more changes to come because of the COVID situation with the Vancouver Canucks. And we will go there now and welcome Thomas Drance to the show, who is a senior writer with The Athletic who covers the Canucks. Thomas, welcome back to the 630 Chet Airwaves. How are you doing? Reed, thank you for having me. I'm doing all right, although I'd much rather be breaking down, you know, engaging what the market for a selling team looks like at the trade deadline a week from now than, you know, diving deep into the details of a really worrisome COVID outbreak that has shut down the Vancouver Canucks and likely will cause them to miss at least another 10 days of action uh, from this point forward. Yeah, well, I, I, I think we, we still might get into the trade stuff later in the conversation, but but the headline, well, really for the last several days is what's going on with the Canucks. And now uh, another player um, added today. So what's what's the extent of this now with players, coaches, and perhaps even family members that you might have heard about? Yeah, so you've got 17 players on the list, three coaches unnamed. Uh, there's two additional players. Those are taxi squad players. The Canucks submit them to the league, but the league does not make them public as part of their unavailable or players unavailable due to a COVID protocol list. And you've got, uh, at least as of uh, last night, you still had one player who was a high-risk close contact. Uh, you know, the family spread angle, uh, certainly we saw uh, a public tweet from a partner of one of the players today uh, saying that she was feeling like she'd been hit by a truck. Uh, we've seen similar comments from Adam Gaudet's partner as well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you, you are seeing parts of that occur. You're also seeing a lot of players hold up in hotels, isolated from their family, although, you know, the fact is is that when this was caught, right, like, Adam Gaudet was the first player to test positive. He tested positive based on tests on a Monday. However, he was pulled off the ice surface on a Tuesday uh, in the middle of practice. Uh, the, all, the Canucks, all other Canucks players and coaches tested negative that day on the Tuesday. And so they skated on Wednesday as a result. Um, for a morning skate, however, at that point, there were three and then you get into six, and then 10, and then two, and then one today, and, and hopefully that's the extent of it. The, the, the one good piece of news from a Canucks player personnel side is that to this point, no support staff have tested positive, and that was accurate uh, you know, as of uh, Sunday's testing anyway. The, or, yeah, so today, though, is going to be a crucial day for both them and additional players who have been negative to this point. Because as of today, assuming that players and staff who tested negative today, and they, they're doing so at the moment in a, in a makeshift drive-through testing apparatus set up by Life Labs at Rogers Arena, in the event that they do, they'll have been negative five tests since their last exposure on that Wednesday. Um, so that would be a really strong indicator that, you know, hopefully uh, they've avoided contracting the virus. And, and specifically, it's widely assumed to be at this point the P1 variant. Um, you know, we'll see. But while that would be good news for the Canucks and good news 
you know, in, in general, just from a human perspective, I, I kind of wonder, Reed, honestly, if the fact that to this point, no Canucks injured players have contracted the virus despite being in the locker room and, and gym and medical facilities uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, no equipment trainers have contracted the virus or tested positive having been, and as we all know, like really in the weeds in that locker room setting. Uh, if the outbreak is this prevalent among coaches and players and not among support staff and injured players like that, that to me would keep me up at night if I were the NHL because that suggests that the unmasked athletic activity that took place on the ice was the primary vector of transmission um, with the P1 variant establishing a, a foothold, a significant foothold in Vancouver and, and now looking like it's beginning to establish one in Alberta as well. I think that poses some really scary questions about what the next five weeks of hockey, six weeks of hockey, honestly, into the playoffs uh, could look like in the North Division. Oh, man. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's a fair point. And the Canucks have now not played since... The 24th it, of March. Is it March 24th? I just yeah. I, like I had their schedule ready to go, and then as I was about to say that to you, I was like, "Wait a minute!" So because yeah. oh right, so they, they played week, the 24th. They had, so they had a week long break built into their schedule, uh, and that was a buffer week in case any games needed to be rescheduled. And of course, this has all happened on the other side of that week, further limiting the NHL's options, really to the point where. While the plan is for the Canucks to find a way to get 56 in, I think that's going to, like, personally, my view of it, I think that's going to prove impractical, uh, especially considering some of the deadlines the NHL is going to need to adhere to in finishing the season prior to the beginning of the Tokyo Olympics. Yeah, well, I, I was wondering about your read on that, and we just had John Shannon on the show, and, and Stauffer and I were speculating. You know, Stauffer actually brought up could everybody get to 56 except the Canucks? You know, could they just say, okay, Edmonton, now now you got an extra game against Ottawa. You got an extra game against the mm. Jets. You're playing the Flames 12 times instead of 10. But, you know, John Shannon says the NHL wants to get everyone to 56. Maybe they'd lop a game off at the very end if it truly had no effect on the standing. And look, the priority is that these players and their families re- recover. I of mean, course. hopefully there's no hospitalizations or worse as a result. But yeah, I don't know how you fit in basically two and a half weeks worth of games. Like, I, I don't no. know how that, how that happens. <laughs> I don't either. And, you know, you'd, you'd think that the Canucks wouldn't be able to even gather to practice realistically for another 10 days from now. Uh, and that's if everything goes well. Um, you know, by the time you get to what, two weeks from today, assuming that that's sort of the first realistic day that the Canucks could play. Maybe it's maybe it's 12 days from today. But, but nonetheless, by that point, you're looking at the second half of April and sort of, what, 28 days to play 19 games um, on the tail end of a significant COVID outbreak that's impacted the majority of the club's roster. Uh, is that sacrificing more? in terms of the competitive integrity of a 56-game schedule than having one team finish at 52 games and their draft position determined by point percentage, right? Like, is what, what's the benefit uh, of ultimately having that sort of schedule run so that it's uniform with every team at 56? I, I struggle to sort of see how that makes any practical sense. And while uh, I understand hoping for the best and, and doing what you can to plan for the best, 
Um, to me, you know, I, I will. Uh, it just does. It seems like too big a rock to move um, from a logistical standpoint for the NHL. Uh, I suppose we'll see how it unfolds, but that's just my sort of sense of it. Just looking at the calendar, looking at the schedule, and sort of trying to figure out, like, you know, they have a bunch of games remaining against the Ottawa Senators. Do they really need to play those games? Like, neither team is realistically in the mix for the playoffs. Even uh, even the games that they have remaining against Calgary. You know, can you at least put those sort of games at the tail end of the schedule? And if Calgary hangs in enough that they matter or could matter, you could play them. Um, but I mean, for me, those sorts, those are the sorts of, of exigencies that I, that I think the league and the team has to be considering in sort of figuring out how to move beyond this. Um, but, but, but as you say, families are the first priority, players are the first priority. And, you know, at some point in the next two hours, the Canucks will get the results of Monday's tests back. Um, you know, I think until the team stops producing additional positives from this outbreak, which hasn't happened since Tuesday of last week, um, you know, it, it seems a little bit premature to be looking uh, ahead at what the rest of the season looks like for this club, frankly. Yeah, yeah, you make a lot of good points. Thomas Durant's joining us from The Athletic. He covers the Vancouver Canucks. And I'll I'll close with uh, what you kind of started with, that it'd be nice if we were talking about, um, you know, where the Canucks were were headed here and and who might be available at the deadline. And I will ask you that. But but this affects that too. I, I mean... It does, yeah. Is an, NHL gonna, is an NHL general manager going to trade for somebody who was really sick with COVID? Because even if that player is eventually cleared to play, I mean, I think we've seen with Buffalo, I think at least some of their last place record might be attributed to the fact that they had they had guys with COVID, and who knows how they felt coming back. So can the Canucks, can the Canucks even be involved in the trade market now? Yeah, it's going to be really complicated. Uh, you know, the... Injured players were not, have to this point, and this is as of Sunday's test results, um, have not tested positive, and that includes Tanner Pearson, who would seem to be the Canucks' best trade chip, probably not quite into the Palmieri uh, Taylor Hall market with with a player like Pearson, but sort of a a consolation prize perhaps for a team that still wants to add a complimentary middle six winger, right? Um, You know, so... uh, at the very least that might be an option but look i think it's going to be first of all i think it was going to be extraordinarily difficult for the connects to monetize assets anyway um i agree with you i think teams will be extremely leery about adding players who are on the covid protocol at the day that they're the day that they're acquired to their lineup um at the deadline I, i for sure and and it's not just buffalo like look at what happened to philadelphia after seven of their players um, you know, were on the protocol list, or the New Jersey Devils after 16 of theirs, or the Dallas Stars to start, start the season, right? Like, we've got a lot of evidence now that it takes some time to recover from this, uh, especially if the outbreak's widespread within a team. Presumably, that impacts individual players, too. And, and from talking to, you know, a variety like coaches in Europe whose teams dealt with outbreaks this season, you know, they, they insist that it took a while for their teams to rebound. So, uh, you know, uh, it makes sense. I mean, <laughs> it would be a surprise if it weren't that way. Um, yeah. That said, you know, I think the Canucks were going to be in tough to monetize assets anyway. You know, we're looking at this deadline where there just isn't a ton of incentive to buy rate. You know, the, usually we see deadline prices driven 
by that team that's in ninth but has played well for three weeks, right? And and sort of has a has a shot. They're in with a they're in with a shot. They're, they're hopeful of making the playoffs. And the reason that those trades happen is that in a world with gate revenue, home gate revenue, you know, getting those extra three playoff dates, maybe four playoff dates, maybe you went around and it's six. Like the incentive, that's ten million dollars in cash for your owner, especially if you're in a major hockey market. Might be more in Edmonton and Vancouver. If you're a fringe playoff team, even if you're in fourth in your division and don't think you have a realistic cup shot, what's the incentive to make that deal? From there's there's almost no business case to be made. You know, unless you're Tampa, Colorado, uh, Vegas, um, you know. <laughs> Toronto, like honestly, like the very, very top, yeah, yeah, and, and you know maybe Carolina, like it, unless you're one of those teams, what's your incentive to buy? Uh, because if you're not winning the cup, it's really tough to understand what benefit, you know, adding a player and and adding that you know extra three percent chance of advancing past one round or or making the playoffs. Like, what, what's the what's the payoff for that? That that sort of mutes incentives, limits buyers, and I think will result in depressed prices, a, a buyer's market, and a really tricky trade deadline to navigate. And and having said all of that, that doesn't even factor in, you know, uh, players on COVID protocol, the protocol the players have to go through to isolate prior to joining their new clubs, or the fact that 18 teams in the NHL are within a million dollars of the cap and 16 are in long-term injured reserve, meaning that all deals have to be cash in, cash out. This is a unique NHL trade deadline, probably the most complicated one we've ever seen. Um, you know, I think the Canucks were going to be in extraordinarily uh, difficult straits to make a move anyway. And now, for sure, their last week and change has been spent discussing player health issues and trying to grapple with you know a catastrophic outbreak, frankly, at their own facility. Um, that has necessarily caused the focus to tick to come off the deadline to some extent and and off of hockey matters to some extent as it should and that's going to make things more tricky to navigate as well uh, i'm certainly not expecting a ton from the canucks over the next week uh and mostly you know i'm, I'm just hopeful that the positives start stop being produced um and that this outbreak is contained managed and that everyone makes a full recovery with minimal symptoms um, from this point forward. Thomas, as usual, you nail it. Appreciate the uh, the insight, buddy. Keep plugging away, buddy. We'll talk soon. Thanks. My pleasure, Reed. Cheers. Bye. Thomas Drantz covers the Canucks for the Athletic. Uh, good update on their situation and uh, insight into the future ramifications of uh, their COVID situation. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.